Well, good morning. It's good to have you here. I'm kind of hoping as this is kind of an early Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, you know, coming in March. My prayer is that so will spring come early. Um, I hope you're praying with me. I want to share with you a story that kind of helps set up what I want to speak about from this passage of Scripture this morning on this Palm Sunday. It was in 1876, actually, in the year 1876, Lou Wallace. He was a young man, pretty close to my age, so you can laugh. He was 30. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, on a train ride, he was on a train ride to Indianapolis and General Lew Wallace met the famed agnostic Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll on this trip. They hadn't uh, really spent much time and engaged in conversation before. So after they had talked a bit with introductions and actually shared a bit about some of the military stuff, some political stuff, they moved into conversation about religion. And Wallace was aware of Ingersoll's stance. He was quite um, avowed agnostic atheist, in, in fact. And at a certain point, he, he asked him, he said, you know, what about God? Do you believe in him, this afterlife of heaven and earth? And, and Ingersoll laughingly responded and said no. And then for about two hours in conversation together, he eloquently uh, argued his convictions of why he didn't believe in God and the afterlife and, and why he didn't believe in Jesus and who he said he was. And when they actually got off the train in Indianapolis, Wallace's thoughts were just running. He had been rattled. He was a person who had grown up hearing about the, the claims of Christ. He actually had heard stories on his grandmother's knee. He had been in church and he sat not on the more cushioned seats of, of a pew, but he actually sat on hard pews, those seats, and he would find ways when he was growing up to entertain himself. He was kind of self, you know, absorbed and halfway listening. And and here, as he was with Ingersoll, his superficial faith was shaken. In fact, this in in their conversation, as they as they talked back and forth, Ingersoll said, There's one thing that is critical. He said the crucial question of what you say you believe, which he wasn't able to defend very well. And he said, it's this. And here's the challenge he gave him. He said, prove whether Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is God, all the other stuff falls in line. Well, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience yourself. I I know there may be some who, when you went through your high school years, you grew up in a church and you heard claims from the pulpit and you heard it taught in Sunday school. And then you come to sometime maybe in your college times where you begin to have your faith rattled and and it's shaken. Or maybe in your own experience at some point you, you never even came to that place, but maybe through a divorce or an illness or something was going on. And in that process, you began to have to get real with what is this? truth all about is Jesus who he says he is is this faith thing that I've sat from Sunday after Sunday and heard about really true what does it mean for me it could be that you're here with a spouse because it's holy week and 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 you're kind of just putting in time and and you may be you know maybe wondering could be all kinds of places where people are at this morning 
But there is a really critical question that I want you to entertain. And that is, is Jesus God? Well, in March of 1880, just four years after Ingersoll's challenge, General Lew Wallace finished his own personal search. It it forced him on a four-year search. And his search led him to write a novel, which was all a part of the research and answer to that challenge. Wallace called the novel Judah, A Tale of the Christ. And the publisher thought Judah sounded a bit too much like Judas, so the publisher changed the title, which publishers often have free reign to do. And the book was published on November 12, 1880, and it sold for $1.50. And when the book was published, it received positive reviews. In fact, only two books received nationwide support because of their themes by the clergy that year. The book by Wallace and a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. The novel later that Wallace had written became a hit movie for MGM and starred Charlton Heston. Maybe you're getting close to what this is. Two scenes usually stick out in people's minds when they think of this movie. And when I was a child and I saw it, they, both these scenes were imprinted in my, my, in my, my mind. The one is a wild 20-minute chariot race. Anybody get an idea yet? The other is Heston being chained as a slave to a ship's gallery bench. Remember that? And the name the publishers changed Judah, A Tale of Christ, to was Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And I feel like I should say, and now you know the rest of the story. But both the novel and the movie had an incredible impact on people's lives at that time. But its greatest impact was really on the author himself. It was through the writing of that book and through the research that Lou Wallace came to the claims of Christ and was forced to accept these claims of Christ in his life. He took the challenge, researched it, and came to the conclusion, Jesus is God. In fact, so thorough and accurate was his research that a year after writing the novel, Wallace decided to go to Palestine and Jerusalem. He had never been there. And at Bethany, he decided to follow the, the, the Judah Ben-Hur's exact route from Bethany Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. And at every point of the journey, he found that his meticulous research had paid off. His descriptions in Ben-Hur were exact in every detail. And Wallace came to grips with this question in the middle age years of his life. And through his answer, he found it transformed his life. Well, this morning, I want to ask you to consider this maybe anew, maybe for the first time, or maybe you've never gotten deep. Maybe you sat on pew benches and heard stories from your mother or grandmother's knee and never got beneath this claim and, and asked yourself, is Jesus God? And how would you know if he was? Could you give an answer to someone if they challenged you? If you had an Ingersoll sitting next to you for three, four hours on a flight or a train ride or whatever it might be, what would your response be? And then, does it really matter? Did Jesus actually claim this? If you look at Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17, that's what we're going to look at. It's, it's a passage which is our Palm Sunday passage. Nearly 2,000 years ago, though, if you read this passage of Scripture, and it hit me anew, that when, when Jesus um, was doing this ride into Jerusalem, it had incredible significance. He was making it very clear to people. Listen to the words of this, of this 
passage in Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the, and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked. And and here's an important question that Matthew puts in here. Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer. But you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna or save us, son of David, they were indignant. They were really ticked off. That's my little paraphrase. Anyway, um, and they asked, do you hear what the children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Let's pray. Father, in these few moments, would you allow your Holy Spirit to have freedom to move and to, to work through the words and through our hearts? And, and would you allow us to be able to hear you and meet you in a fresh and new way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this little story, and I love this story, there's plenty of evidence to prove that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, that he claimed to be God in flesh. And what I want us to do this morning is to evaluate and and to look at this evidence. But I want to begin by just asking you to consider for a second as we move into this. Just think about if there was a person, and let's say you were living on a remote island without any mass communication, you had no idea of what was going on in other parts of the world. And as you were living there, on the other side of the island were some friends of yours. And one day those friends came to you and they said, guess what? There was a guy on a yacht and he got shipwrecked here and he, he, he actually claims to be the president of a very large country called the U.S., and, and you kind of, you know, meet this guy and you go, well, he looks a little presidential, but you're not really sure. You know, for you to know and to, and to really come to grips with whether this person is the president, there's some easy things you can do. You can, first of all, just ask him, does he claim to be the president? And then if you have the opportunity when he gets rescued, if he gets rescued, to go back and to see, does he carry out the functions of what the president does? And then beyond that, you can actually see whether he accepts and receives the privileges and rights of what a president would receive. Those are three simple questions you can ask. Does he make this claim? Does he carry out the functions of the office he claims to have? 
And does he enjoy the privileges and rights of that position? And I just want us to ask those same kind of questions when you consider the fact that God, at least the word of God, claims that that God came in flesh through Jesus. And you can ask the same questions because you may have someone who comes to you at one point or you may come to someone else and they're going to ask you and they're going to say, well, how do you know? Well, you can just look and say, does he make the claim? Does he carry out those functions? Does he receive what would be considered the privileges of one who makes that claim? First, if you look at this passage of scripture, I I believe as you see it and you see other parts in scripture, you'll see that Jesus claimed to be God. In fact, if you look at this passage of scripture, the entire incident, it is not an accident. Jesus purposely made the claim to be their king. And you need to set this up because you need to understand what Matthew is setting up. You know, the disciples weren't always the sharpest of the sharp, right? Jesus kind of chose the B squad, which gives us all hope. And what was really cool is that Matthew, though, at a certain point, he really got it. He understood what Jesus was intending when he came and he he walked out, not speaking a sermon, but he actually acted out a sermon, a parable. He had a living parable that was demonstrated before the people, before his death on the cross and before his resurrection. He came in in this sense saying, I am your king. I am God in flesh. Coming here to save you. In fact, you knew it was intentional because it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that, that one would come like this. There would, there would be the king who would come, the Messiah, the supernatural one, the son of God, son of David, the perfect representation of God himself, would come riding. And here he comes riding in on a donkey in a cult, not preaching a sermon, but acting out a sermon. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing that day. He knew that when he would tell parables, he would often have people who would sometimes discern it because their hearts would be open and humble to hear. It's a spiritual thing. The revelation of God and what he means in his his presence in your life is something that is discerned by a humble heart that wants to receive it. And so he would share this parable. And this message was important to understand because in that day, when a king was coming into a town, let's say there was a town where there was an uprising, and, and they said to the king, you need to go to that town, you need to deal with these people, And what would often happen in order for the king to to make his mark, he would ride in on on a stallion, a white stallion, and with him would come the armies and they would come and the people would know we're in trouble. But when a king decided to come to a place in peace and what he wanted was reconciliation, what he wanted to do was to enter into this place where there may have been some turmoil or there may be some kind of uprising. And he wanted to bring to it to the people a sense of, hey, let's work these things out. I come to you in peace. He would ride in on an innocent young donkey and you would have the mother there and the, and the baby full. And as he would ride in on this full, people knew that the king was coming to bring peace. And in this message, here is Jesus making no mistake about it, no accident, knew it was prophesied scripture coming in bringing before the people without saying one word that God is here and he brings peace he made two simple points that God wants to come to every person even those who are enemies to him and he wants to reconcile he wants to be in relationship And Jesus, who throughout Scripture is always shown as the fulfillment of a law and every prophecy and every type fulfills one more type so all people could see this was God coming in flesh. 
And if you follow this step, is this story a step further? What I think is interesting, and you've got to notice what Jesus does. Here he comes, acts out the sermon, but he doesn't just stop and write. We always stop there. He doesn't just stop there. He actually rides to where? Where does he go? This makes a huge point. Jesus rides into town, announcing peace, fulfilling prophecy, and he heads immediately to his home on earth, the temple. Jesus, who is God in flesh, enters into his holy seat. He heads to his home to clear it of everything that keeps people from being in relationship with him. I mean, that, that's an incredible statement without one word spoken. In fact, you can look at all kinds of examples because this is a claim. And you could go, well, that's an acted out parable. You're kind of reading into it. But let me just fulfill it and color it in a little bit. Because all throughout Scripture, Jesus makes this claim of divinity. He said things that if you take it at face value would cause panic today. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I've heard people in our day and age where they'll kind of say, well, you know, Jesus was claiming that he, if you live his life, that's the way and that's the truth and that's life. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think he was just saying that. I think he was saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life. I think he also said, I am the light of the world that gives direction to your life. Listen to these claims. He says at one point, I am the bread that nourishes your spirit. I am the shepherd who actually cares for your soul. And at one point, the Jewish leaders who knew exactly what he's saying, he said, I am who I am. And he was quoting what was God's word to Moses. Now, imagine, let me just put it in this realm for you in, to understand it. What if you heard from the lips of George Bush, who returned from Iraq or from China? He came and he said, I am the bread that nourishes your soul. I am the light. If you just look at me and I'll give you direction. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know what? Leno Letterman and every late night TV show would have a field day, would they not? I mean, honestly, you put that in context of, of this day and then put it even to his day, which was even far more uh, um, sensitive to this Jewish population of those kind of claims. Those are direct claims to being God. And C.S. Lewis wrote, anybody who would dare to make such claims would either be a liar or a lunatic. I mean, you can't have the he's just a good teacher thing. It, there's another question I've got to ask, because, you know, this guy who comes to this other guy, let's say you on an island and claims to be the president. You know, anybody could claim that throughout history. People have claimed to be God in flesh. So you really have to couple this with another answer, another question. And that question is this. Did Jesus carry out functions or those kind of activities that only God himself could carry out? And getting back to the claim of what a president would do, if, if you were to follow this guy back home, you'd want to watch some things. You'd want to watch to see whether this guy gives the State of the Union address, right? You'd want to see if he assumes the position of commander in chief. You'd want to watch to see if this guy has the ability to veto bills. Those are all functions that are carried out by someone who claims to, quote, be president. So if you were to apply the same thing to Jesus and you were to ask this question, if someone was to ask you, is he God? You said, well, I can show you through some claims. And I love this passage of Matthew because it is seriously throughout it. You'll see a claim that Jesus is making that I'm the king, God in flesh coming. First of all, Jesus prophesied and predicted and foretold the future. That is the kind of thing that I say God normally does. Now, some people, you know, put this all together. But some people make prophecies. 
But if you look at Luke chapter 19 on this very same passage where Luke is commenting on the triumphal entry, he writes, go to the village, says Jesus, ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Luke continues, those who were sent went and found it just as he told them. Now, either Jesus is a meticulous planner or he was predicting the future. Arranging the future. In fact, a few verses earlier, if you go to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, before this chapter 21, Jesus has his disciples sit down. He tells them again that soon he will die and he actually shares how it's going to happen. And throughout the gospel, you find that Jesus does many of these things that only God can do. In fact, at one point in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, it's recorded that Jesus looks at some of his antagonists and he says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said. I want you to catch this. It doesn't say having an idea of what they were thinking. It literally says knowing their thoughts, which is obviously, I think, a function that's reserved only for God and mothers, right? I don't know, you know, God's spirit, both male and female, somehow the gene of knowing what people think went to mothers, kids. I don't get it. But that's a God thing. I mean, you would be a little nervous right now if I was able to look at you, call out your name and tell you exactly what you're thinking. Anybody be a little nervous? Or what you thought last night. But Jesus did that. Commonly predicted the future, commonly predicted what was going on in people's heads and minds, commonly saw into their hearts and souls. But if you combine that, not just the fact that he predicted the future and he knew what was going on in people's hearts and minds, this, Jesus did miracles. And again, if you look at this passage, it's it's really interesting. But Jesus did these kind of things throughout his life that only a God could do. He turned water into wine. At one time, he stood before this tornadic hurricane-type storm, and he just spoke a word, and he calmed it. I bet you people in Atlanta would have loved that ability this week, right? At one point, Jesus sees there's a whole crowd of people. They're famished. He knows they can't find food. And so he says to his disciples, get some of the loaves and the fishes there. They bring, or he says, what do you have to eat? And they bring a couple of loaves and fishes, and he multiplies it to over 5,000 people. And in this passage of Scripture, Matthew 21, 14, It says the blind and the lame, they came to him at his home, the temple, and he healed them. Matthew also records, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law, listen, they saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant because they knew exactly what he was claiming. You see, even they're questioning whether Jesus was God and seeing these wonderful things he did was forcing the very reality of the fact that Jesus was doing the kind of things that only God could do, and they knew it. So not only did he predict the future and know what's going on in people's hearts, and not only did he do miracles, and we, I haven't even touched on hardly any of them, but Jesus also forgave sin. We read at one point that, that in Matthew 9, a paralytic is brought before Jesus, and Jesus says to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And at this declaration, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said. 
It's really interesting. It would be okay for me to forgive the sin of someone. Let's say my wife and maybe she has done something against me or another person has done something against me. But for me to forgive this person's sins against someone else is wacky, right? I mean, if, if the president goes in and vetoes a bill, it's okay. He might not like it, but it's, it's, he's got that right. That's just a function to do. But if someone else does it, you'd be a little upset, right? That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus comes along and he's basically vetoing someone else's action against another. And they're going, you can't do that. Only God does that. This is blasphemy. So not only does he predict the future, know what's in people's hearts, does he do miracles and forgive sins. But here's the kind of big one. Jesus actually raises himself from the dead. That's a, for me, that's kind of a no-brainer one. When Jesus was asked how to know for certain that he is God, as he was claiming, on a number of occasions, Jesus would say something like, this temple, my body, which took 40, you know, he'd point to the temple. This temple, which took 40 years to build, will be destroyed. But destroy this temple, then he would be referring to his body. I will resurrect it in three days. Not God the Father. I will resurrect it in three days. When asked for a sign, Jesus would often say, for three days and nights, Jodah was in the belly of a large fish. So for three days and nights, I will be in the belly of the earth. So you have this guy who goes around claiming to be God here on Palm Sunday, does a sermon on it, but never says a word. And in it carries out all the functions of what a God does, predicting the future in this in this sermon. He, he actually goes ahead and heals people. You see all the activities of God taking place in just a few days. He's going to actually die on a cross and forgive people of their sins. And then he raises himself from the dead. Now, here's here's my favorite part of this whole thing. Not only does he make the claim, not only does he carry out those activities of what you would think one who claims to be God would do. But Jesus enjoyed the privileges and status reserved for God alone. And this passage, again, brings us all the light. I was so thrilled when I was reading and studying this passage and began to see how this whole triumphal entry and this passion of Christ and the resurrection, all is this beautiful picture of here is here is God coming in, in Jesus to make himself known to people. And, and if you go back one more time, just for a second to that illustration of the president. You would expect, if you were to follow this guy around, that the president, if he claimed to be that, and he was vetoing and, and doing state address, you know, the union addresses and things like that, you would expect him to get on Air Force One, right? That's a privilege of his alone. You would expect for him to get on a helicopter from time to time to go to Camp David. You would expect also for him to receive, when people would come to him, a, a, a very reverent kind of Mr. President kind of introductions. Well, in the same way, if we look at the life of Jesus, and I love this part, the privileges and status reserved for God alone, you'll find that in this passage of Scripture, you will see one of the clearest examples of this. Jesus enjoyed and received praise and worship, which was the sole right of God. Now, to really understand, I state that, and, and you go, well, yeah, that's cool. You've got to understand the context and the background of what it meant in that day to receive praise and worship. In the first century, religious Jews recited twice a day Deuteronomy 6.4, which is called the Shema. This was the watchword of the people of Israel. God revealed himself. I am who I am. And this is what they would say. Hear, O Israel. 
the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The confession of faith affirms that there is only one God, not many, and that he is the unique God of the universe. But it also implies to every good Israelite that God alone is the proper object to worship and to worship the create the create the one who is created is blasphemy to worship the creator is right. Even in the first century, Christians shared this very same utter repulsion at the idea of a human being being worshipped. Listen to this. When the people of Lystra tried to sacrifice to Barnabas and, and Paul, after they had done some, uh, uh, um, God through them did a miracle, the apostles, it said, tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting. It, it, I mean, can you imagine that? They tore their clothes in a sense of, of, of utter Repentance and humility don't do this. And they yelled, we too are only men human like you. Because they were so aware that you do not give worship to anyone but God himself. Even the worship of angels, according to that day and according to the word of God, is repulsive. It was repulsive to both Jews and Christians. When the apostle John fell at the feet of an angel, we read in Revelation, in order to worship him, the angel gave him a stern rebuke. Now, I mean, you kind of go, if an angel shows up to you with all this brilliance, you'd probably fall on your knees, right? And John, who actually walked with Jesus, here he begins to worship, and the angel says, don't do it. And it's against that background that you have to read Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16, okay? Listen to these words. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple area, save us, son of David, they were inflamed and indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? Correct it. Tear your clothes. Let them know. Jesus goes, yeah, I hear them. And he says, haven't you ever read from the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise? Luke reports it this way. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke them. And I tell you, Jesus replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you. And encircle you in, on every side. He's prophesying again. 70 AD, that's exactly what the Romans did. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize. Listen, you did not recognize. You did not see your spirit. Was so proud. You were so unwilling. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's one of the most clear and forthright statements in Scripture. Before you, in a sense, he says, stands Jesus you're God in flesh, and you did not bow. You did not recognize the time of my coming. See, praise and worship was given to Jesus, and he, he welcomed it. He welcomed it. In our day, we would look upon such a person and say, they're a lunatic. If I stood up here and I said, you know, worship me and praise me, 
you would say you're nuts. In fact, after the service, some people said, really good job, and they're always so careful to make sure they know that it was God. And I go, yeah, I know. I do know that. I do know it's God's Spirit that works through all of our gifts. And, and, you know, one of the greatest things in the world is to come to a place where as you grow in humility, you understand and see how much you're just a vessel of all that. But Jesus was not just a vessel. He was a vessel that was God in flesh. So that in John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, Jesus stands before the people and he says, I and the Father are one. Now catch this again. You've got to almost underline that in, your script, in the scripture. John 10, verses 30 through 33. Again, underline it. Because this happened many times. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews. But for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, Claim to be God. Listen to that. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the word of God does not affirm the fact that Jesus is both God and flesh. Don't you see in this passage of scripture and throughout the gospels, Jesus made this claim that he is God. He is God fully present. He claimed it, carried out God-sized functions. And then he enjoyed the privileges and status that would be reserved for God alone. And in this little passage here alone, chapter 21 of this triumphal entry, you see it all packaged all together in one place. And I think it's interesting that he does it. He does it because he wants you and me to know that God saves, that the king has come, that he's revealed himself in history at a point so that you could look at it and see, so that you could know that this God comes to save and he does something so totally unusual. He comes in peace, wanting relationship, wanting to move into your life, wanting to move into this community through you to do good deeds, to collect food for people who need it. He comes into this place so that you can know God in your marriage, you can know him in your family, you can know him where you work. He, he comes because he wants to bring peace and relationship. He wants to reconcile with all all of us. And he comes not on a war horse, although Revelation says someday he will come back like that for those who willingly resist. But he comes on this cult, announcing that he's the king coming in peace, and he does something so unbelievable. For people who reject him, or some people who just kind of ho hum throughout their life, or they're religiously indifferent, like a Lou Wallace. And for an Ingersoll who says, I don't really care, I don't want you in my life. He comes and he dies. He dies. So you can know how much he loves you. Folks, this isn't about coming to church. And this isn't about coming out of here with a good worship buzz or anything like this. This is about us as people in this community. With all the believers in this community. With every church in this community. With all who fall on their knees and recognize that Jesus is God. It's us coming to him and saying, if there's any part of our life, would you have and would you come and make those claims? I give it over to you. You know, if I'm holding something back, I want you to have it. Some of you today might be coming in and you and you, you have been running your life and it's under your rule. And, 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 and Jesus isn't coming to make your life rotten. He's, he's not necessarily going to send you to Africa. He could, but I don't think he will. He's coming in so that you can know the fullness of life and walk in it. 
His touch is good. It doesn't mean it won't bring trouble and it won't be tough. You'll go through tough times because Jesus is one of the greatest friends and your father, God, is one of the greatest parents. He knows that our character has been formed often imperfectly with imperfect parents and there's sin and there's patterns and habits that keep us from relating well to people and those that we most love. And there's things about us in our desires that get bent. And he comes and he says, I just want to unbend them and I want to kind of make it possible that you can know me and as you know me, you can live with me. And sometimes that means I've got to bring you through some tough times to break your character. And I can tell you, I know what that's like. But praise God that he does that. Right? That's what God wants to do, folks. And as we approach Good Friday and the death of Jesus, you need to know that the reason Jesus was put to death was because of this charge and this charge alone. It wasn't because of miracles he did. It wasn't because he was some good guy. It wasn't anything that he did, but upon who he was. And it will always fall upon that. Simon Greenleaf, a one-time professor at Harvard School of Law, he was a great lawyer. He said this regarding Jesus' trial. It's not easy to perceive on what ground his conduct could have been defended before any tribunal, unless upon that of his superhuman character. It's legalese. He's basically saying it wasn't anything he did. It was upon who he was. No lawyer, it is conceived, would think of placing his defense upon any other basis. And so in that day, if you were going to charge him for anything, it would be because he, charged, he claimed to be God. On trial, the charge was that Jesus claimed to be God. Tell us on oath, you, are you the Christ, the Son of God, is what they asked. Do you claim equality with God? And Greenleaf makes this comment as a lawyer. Jesus' formula of reply was this. He said, you say that I am. Which to modern ears sounds evasive, right? But they had no such connotation to the contemporary Jewish mind. You have to understand the legal court system that day. His reply, you have said so, was the traditional form in which a cultivated Jew replied to a question of grave or sad import. Courtesy forbade a direct yes or no. And the Jews must have understood his reply as a claim to his being God. There were no alternatives to be faced then. His assertions were blasphemy. His judges had to see the issue clearly, writes Greenleaf. So clearly, in fact, that they crucified him and then taunted and mocked him by basically saying, if you are God, tell us who hit you. That explains why they're saying this. If you're God, get off the tree you're hanging on. If you're God, call your angels to help. Hobbes, another lawyer, writes, their question invited an affirmative answer. It was the equivalent of a declarative statement on their part. So Jesus simply replied, you've said it. Therefore, Jesus, this is really interesting. Therefore, Jesus made them admit to his identity before they formally found him guilty of death. It was a clever strategy on Jesus' part. He would die not merely upon his own admission to deity, but upon theirs as well. And according to them, there was no need for any other testimony, right? We don't need to hear anybody else. He said it himself. He just admitted it. For they had heard him themselves, so they condemned him by the words of his own mouth. But Jesus also condemned them by their words. And they could not say that they did not proclaim the Son of God, God in flesh, guilty of death. 
Now, it's safe to conclude that Jesus claimed to be God in a way that all could recognize. And these claims were regarded as blasphemous by the religious leaders and resulted many times in their desire to stone him, but in this occasion in his crucifixion. And they wanted him, Jesus, who would make such an ultimate claim on their personal life, their city, their nation, and their world to be God. Do you like God hanging out with you? Knowing your thoughts? Seeing all that's going on? Well, not if he's going to sit around and condemn you all day, right? But imagine a God who rides in on a donkey in peace going, I want to walk with you. I want to be with you like I did with the disciples. I want you to do what I did in this community where you live, in your marriage, and your kids. Think about that for a second. That's the invitation today. That's the God who comes in Jesus on Palm Sunday. It is about a king, folks. But it's more than just a king. It's the king of this universe. God in flesh. So one day, after much research and study, after Lou Wallace's intellectual doubts had been dealt with, Wallace had a decision of the will to make about Jesus and his claim on his life and his world. Did he want God to hang out with him? Every day. And Wallace... He was a general, folks. He understood command. And he understood Ingersoll's question, if Jesus is God, it all changes in your life. And being a general, he gave commands and he expected response. And he recognized at that moment, through that search, there was a God who loved him and wanted to be a part of his life. And wanted to move in and through him in ways that would bring God's goodness. And every one of us, every person here this morning, every child, every middle school student, every high school student, every college student, every adult at any level. It's clear to say Jesus has shown up and in him is God. And it's not really more intellectual data. But for some it may be, and you need to go through that. But for some it is merely a matter of your will. Do you really trust and believe that this God loves you so much that he forgives all your sin? You don't need to live in shame anymore. This God loves you so much that the areas he wants to enter into that you're holding on so tightly, he can do a better job with. The areas that you're afraid to face to walk through, yes, there'll be pain, but he'll walk with you through them. That's the claim. That's what this triumphal entry is about. That's what this cross is all about. It's about a God who loved us so much that he came and he spoke the most convincing, compelling, clear, loud message through an act. Went to his home and then went to a cross. So that we could know him.